you please turn with me in your Bibles to Second uh, Thessalonians. Continue our series this evening in Second Thessalonians. Focus will be specifically on verses 16 and 17, but I want to go back to into the context with verse 15. And so then, hear God's word. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. There's always perfect harmony, even though we may not always understand it or see it, between God's sovereignty and human action. When God chose you for salvation, it was God's power that led you to believe the truth of the gospel, that led you to put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. When God effectually calls you, and that's the word that we use in the Reformed faith when we talk about the effectual call, the effective call of God uh, of the elect, when God effectually calls a sinner to salvation through the gospel, the goal is, as verse 14 says, that you will obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, This glory is the glory of heaven. It is the glory of sharing in Christ's victory. It is God's sovereign power and plan that assures you that as an elect believer, you will, you will, in the end, obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, as part of God's plan and bringing these things to pass, God calls us to act. In order to guide us and to protect us spiritually, he tells us in his word that there are things that we need to do, and these urgings, these commands of God that we act are what we call admonitions. Admonitions are like what we find there in verse 15, that we stand firm and and hold fast to the traditions. You are to do what you can to be strong in your faith. You You and I are to stand firm against false teachers and their doctrine, which means we need to be firmly rooted in what we believe. And the way that you do this, this, the way you stand firm is by heeding that additional, that, that second admonition there in verse 15, to hold to the traditions. This was the theme of last week's sermon. And I want to add a little bit to what was said last week by saying some more about what we would call our specific tradition. And after that, we will move into verses 16 and 17. And these are verses that turn from a focus on our duty to, again, focusing on God's sovereignty. For in these final verses of chapter 2, Paul is praying. He is is asking our sovereign God uh, to enable the Thessalonians to do these things that they have just been called to do. And uh, this prayer is a reminder that even when you and I are called to action, We are never going to do what God calls us to do unless God does a work within us. We are dependent upon God in all things. And this need to rely upon God's sovereignty is exactly why we must take action and pray. Uh, We pray because we know that prayer is the means by which God works in our lives. And so it is that admonitions and prayer belong together. God's sovereignty and human action belong together. These Things are not contradictions, they're not enemies of each other, but God's sovereign plan brings them together 
in perfect harmony, which is why we find these things side by side right here in our passage. So again, as I mentioned a moment ago, I want to expound a bit more this word of God to us that we hold to the traditions. Uh, To obey this admonition, we need to know what it is that we are to hold on to, what is our tradition, and is it a tradition worth holding on to? If someone were to ask you in the context of your Christian beliefs, what is your tradition, what would be your answer? And there are a number of ways to describe our tradition. You would be right in saying that you are a part of the Protestant Christian tradition. The Protestant Reformation was a time in the history of the church when a remnant of people within the church protested where we get the word Protestant. They protested against the direction that the church as a whole was going in its beliefs and practices. The birth of the Protestant Reformation is said to have been on October 31st, 1517, the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. And these theses were statements meant to challenge some of the beliefs and practices in the church. For already by Luther's day, There were unbiblical, man-made traditions that had become an established part of the church's identity. Traditions that included belief in such things as indulgences, purgatory, a place for good works and salvation, the necessity of priests praying for us, and the authority of the Pope to create new teachings with just as much authority as Scripture. And what had happened over the years is an example of how traditions can become established that are not good, that are not proper, that are not biblical. And obviously, man-made traditions that are not in line with the Bible are not ones that we are to hold on to. And what men like Luther and Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, and other reformers sought to do was to bring the church back to those old beliefs, those, those beliefs that had been the tradition of the apostles and of the early church, while at the same time rejecting any belief that was contrary to scripture, even if it had over time become an established tradition. And so it's important to recognize that what these reformers taught was not something brand new. They were actually bringing the church back to its historic roots. They were bringing the church back to the basic beliefs that True believers have always held things like belief in the authority of Scripture alone, the belief that salvation has been earned by Christ alone and is given to us by grace alone through faith alone. We're talking about belief in the sovereignty of God. Uh, The church was being brought back to that basic truth. Um, And because we can trace our beliefs back to this Protestant Reformation, we speak of it as our tradition. And yet we are actually a part of a tradition even more specific than just the Protestant um, Reformation. We are a part of the Reformed branch of the Protestant Reformation. I make this distinction for there are a number of churches today that can trace their history back to the Protestant Reformation, but have not followed the traditions of the Reformation. In other words, they're not a part of the Roman Catholic Church, and yet they have not adopted all of the the main points of the Reformation. Many, even most of the Protestant churches today have departed from the biblical beliefs of our forefathers. For instance, many churches do not believe in sovereign predestination, but this was one of the main beliefs that the Reformers held to. 
uh, one of the main beliefs that they defended over against the Roman Catholic Church. Many Protestant churches today do not believe in infant baptism, this, even though this is a tradition that can be traced very clearly back to the early church. And the Reformers argued for many other basic beliefs as well. And always the Reformers insisted that we must go back to the authority of the Scriptures. And they argued that if you do this, you will find yourself believing in essentially the same body of truth that the church has always believed. And if you recognize this long-established tradition of belief, um, and you hold to this, uh, to these beliefs, then you're going to be leery of new teachings that come along, especially when the teachers of these, these, these new doctrines tell us that the church has been wrong for hundreds, even thousands of years. We should, we should recognize that that is a very odd thing uh, to insist on. Adult-only baptism, for example, is a relatively new teaching that gained uh, uh, any kind of substantial following only about 400 to 500 years ago among the Anabaptists. Dispensationalism, a view of the end times that includes the idea of the rapture, is the most popular in view among Protestant people today, but it was a completely new system of thought when it started in the early 19th century. It should not surprise us then to learn that the system of belief contradicts many of the beliefs of our forefathers. In fact, you can do a study of dispensationalism and find that many of the main ideas, the principles that lie behind it, were actually condemned long ago by the early church as false doctrine. Uh, the charismatic movement, with its emphasis on charismatic gifts, actually, we have a date in which it started, January 1st, 1901. Uh, there is no record of the miracle of tongues taking place between the time of the apostles and 1901. Uh, these are just a few examples of new doctrines that have nothing to do with bringing us back to the right path of tradition. These doctrines are the product of a few individuals claiming to have the truth, while generations of Christians before them never believed such things. And they may not be conscious of it, but those who start new traditions are prideful. It's prideful for one person or for a group of persons to contradict what the Holy Spirit himself has taught the church for years and years. And our tradition is one that insists on believing that system of doctrine that the apostolic church has always believed. Uh, we believe that when the Lord Jesus himself promised to guide his church into the truth, he kept his promise, and uh, that this promise was fulfilled already in the early church. And while the church of Jesus Christ, while we continue to, over the years, grow in our understanding of the scriptures and truth, this must not be confused with um, the idea that, that um, those before us held to substantially different beliefs than we do. No, uh, the, the basic beliefs have been the same. God has always preserved churches which hold to the same basic true beliefs of the Bible. And sometimes the church of Christ has had to break away from those who are leading the church away from its biblical roots and traditions. Uh, but these splits have often been the only way for the church to obediently hold to the traditions. And uh, this tradition of belief that can trace its roots back through the Reformation, clear back to the early church, 
and through the apostles is the one which we consciously and deliberately hold. Um, And this tradition of beliefs is set forth in a systematic way in our confessions, the Westminster Confession of Faith in its shorter and larger catechisms. Uh, The Westminster Assembly, that group of 151 men who wrote this confession, began meeting in 1643, and they met until 1652. And this was only 79 years after the death of John Calvin and only 71 years after the death of John Knox. And so being close to the time of the Reformation, these Westminster divines knew the issues And they recorded a summary of the truths of Scripture over against all of the errors that were around them. And this Reformed tradition is our tradition. It is our heritage. Over a period now of nearly 371 years, these truths have been handed down from generation to generation. And every generation has had the opportunity to search the Scriptures and to confirm these confessions as being an accurate summary of the teachings of Scripture. You must understand that we do not consider the confessions to be infallible or inerrant. They are open to change. They can be corrected at any time. There is an orderly process, yes, but they can be changed. And they have been changed on some minor points. At the same time, the system of doctrine as a whole has never been changed. The church has never concluded that the confessions have been teaching false doctrines contrary to the gospel and salvation. For hundreds of years, scholars and lay people alike have searched the scriptures, and the conclusion has been that our confessions are biblical. And because this tradition of the Reformed faith is grounded solidly on God's word, it is a tradition worth holding on to. So holding to this tradition is what will enable you, part of what will enable you to stand fast, to stand firm in your Christian faith and walk. Standing firm by holding to the traditions is God's will for you. But the fact of the matter is that Scripture's admonitions do not have the power in and of themselves to make you obey. Um, As your pastor, I can read this admonition, these admonitions that are here in these verses this evening. I can read other admonitions and preach on other admonitions, but I cannot make you obey them. The ruling elders of this church can't make you listen and obey. And this is why we are to be men of prayer. As those who have the responsibility to admonish you, we must always keep in mind the importance of praying and of praying to the only one who can, who can and does make his people obey. And uh, that's the Lord Jesus himself. That is our God. Um, And such prayer is important because it is important that you, as God's flock, heed this and every other biblical admonition that we find in Scripture. And so we find here Paul praying to God, this prayer being recorded, recorded for us, being recorded for the Thessalonian people. Um, Paul here is praying on behalf of the Thessalonians because he knew the serious situation that they faced. Chapter 2, verse 3 speaks of how in the last days many will fall away. Many will give heed to false doctrine. Part of Paul's pastoral concern is that these people of God in Thessalonica might become frightened by the description that he has just given of the last days. He has described the man of sin in a way that is troubling. The last days are clearly a time of great evil and persecution. And Paul realizes that these believers might be thinking to themselves, 
Am I going to fall away? Am I going to stand firm in the last days? Am I going to persevere in my faith? Am I going to recognize false doctrine? Am I going to be able to stand against the Antichrist if he comes in my lifetime? Or will I be one of those who is deceived? And these concerns are serious when you remember that Paul says that those who are deceived by this Antichrist will perish. Those who are duped by the Antichrist will be condemned with him. So we're talking about this as a matter of salvation. These are not just the concerns either of the Thessalonians, but concerns should be the concerns of all Christians. The last days are difficult days. They are days that challenge our faith. And Paul's approach to these believers has been twofold. First, he has assured them of God's sovereignty, of, of God's Uh, sovereign plan to save his people. He has assured them that true believers will not fall away by reminding them that God has chosen them for salvation. It says, uh, verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Back in uh, verse 13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. So, Paul, first of all, reminds, assures them that true believers are not going to fall away, reminding them that God has chosen his elect unto salvation, and as a result, his people are given faith to respond to the gospel. They're going to obtain heaven. They are going to obtain salvation. And you also need to be reminded of God's sovereign power and of his plan to save his church. By putting your trust in Christ, you have put your trust in, in the rock who will protect you. Christ is a refuge for all sinners who rest in him. And so Paul's first step is to assure all true believers that God has the power to preserve them in their faith. He's, Paul's obviously here wanting to comfort. He's wanting to encourage God's people. And then the second part of Paul's approach is to admonish them to stand firm and hold to, to the tradition. He calls them action. He wants them to be faithful in doing their part. He expects those who are truly elect, uh, those who are concerned about their spiritual state and concerned about their faithfulness and perseverance in their faith, that they're going to hear this call and are going to respond. They're going to want to do these things. And then immediately after giving them this admonition concerning what they are to do, he prays for them. And uh, the two requests of of Paul's prayer in verses 16 and 17 follow right in line with his twofold desire that the people be comforted and stand firm. If you look there at verse 17, the first request is that God would comfort their hearts. The second request is that God would establish them in every good work and word. So what Paul desires for the Thessalonians, first of all, is again, Comfort. He, his desire is that their hearts would be comforted. And to comfort means to come alongside one in or, someone in order to speak words of encouragement. Remember how back in chapter 2, verse 2, the believers in Thessalonica were at least some of them shaken in mind and troubled. And uh, this was because of the false doctrine that was circulating concerning Jesus' imminent return or the belief that he had already come secretly. And uh, they, they thought perhaps they had missed out or that, that um, Jesus was going to return at, at, at any moment. 
And in order to combat this false troubling teaching, Jesus, um, Paul explained to them that the Antichrist must come first. But of course, his teaching on the Antichrist is itself troubling. The evil and deceiving power of this enemy of the church is not something to be taken lightly. And of course, no one longs for the coming of the Antichrist. It's a horrible thing. We want Christ to return, but then we dread to think about what the church will have to go through first. And uh, there may be some of you here this evening as you think about these things, as you think about the future, as you think about even the direction perhaps of our country and of the world. There's perhaps a surge of fear, perhaps even a surge of anxiety that goes through your heart. And in light of what is going to happen before Christ's return, even just before it, it's only natural that you and I would want God to come alongside of us with comfort. Uh, We desire to be encouraged as we face the future. We need the kind of comfort and encouragement that that penetrates into our hearts, into the very core of our being. When you and I become troubled in our hearts, this means we are being deeply affected. And if that happens, you may not know what to think. You may not know not. Uh, you may not know what to do. And in the light of the coming Antichrist, we don't need some nice sayings that just attempt to smooth everything over. But we need our hearts to be comforted. And uh, God's word in many places indicates to us that God is his people. Uh, He wants us to know comfort and peace. He doesn't want us to live lives marked by fear and anxiety. Um, When Jesus sensed that his disciples were afraid, he told them, let not your hearts be troubled. God's desire is that as his dear children, your normal condition would be one of contentment and joy and peace and delight The psalmist writes in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. He says, do not fret. He says, trust in the Lord, rest in the Lord. I'm also reminded of the opening question and answer of our shorter catechism, where it's asked, what is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man, we are told, is to glorify God and, notice, to enjoy him forever. Uh, A life of enjoyment of God is, I would argue, a life that's most, most undoubtedly marked by comfort. And so it's appropriate to ask God for comfort. Let's consider for a moment the opposite, what, what uncomforted hearts are like. And uh, Reverend Ronald Van Overloop, in an article on these verses, he writes this. He says, uncomforted hearts convey bad things. First, unhappiness or being negative dishonors our God with our doubts and fears. God not only wants his people to be comforted, but also he has done everything that is necessary for them to be comforted. When they are not, then they are declaring that he has not done enough. Their fears and doubts imply a charge of inadequacy brought against God. And second, just as a joyful and comforted spirit is a powerful testimony to others, of what God has done and is doing for us, so also do we who are professing believers, when we are not comforted, give occasion for our God and his comfort to be blasphemed. We must pray for God to comfort us and for the ability to live in that comfort. End quote. In other words, we are to pray for comfort, not just for our own benefit, not just for 
our own comfort in a, in a, in a sense of that this is something that's pleasurable to us and, and enjoyable to us, but we should, we should pray for our comfort so that God will be glorified through us, through the comfort that others can see in us. So we need this prayer. Um, we need to pray this prayer because we need to God, for God to get to our hearts and to keep us strong inside which brings us to the second request of Paul's prayer and establish them, that is, their hearts, in every good work and word. When we are comforted, I'd argue we are stable. Um, if we are comforted, we are going to stand firm. And for Paul to ask that these believers' hearts be established in every good work and word is basically the same thing as asking and, and admonishing them to stand firm. It is to ask of God that they not be shaken and troubled. And you and I need the stability that Paul describes here where our hearts are established in every good word. Notice that, first of all. We'll take the second one first, established in every good word. I take this to mean the word of God. Paul is thinking again of this idea of holding to the traditions we need to know God's word, his truth, as it has been recorded in the Bible, that, that truth as it has been developed through the years, through the study of God's people and, and summarized in our confessions, we need to be established in this truth where we know it intimately and where we hold on to it no matter what challenges come our way, whether it be the challenge of false doctrine that seeks to deceive us or the challenge of circumstances that tempt us to doubt God's promises. We need to be grounded solidly in God's word. We need God to do a work in us so that we heed this admonition to hold to the traditions. We also need the stability that comes from our hearts being established in every good work. We need to live lives of quiet stability where every day we seek to glorify God by faithfully serving and obeying him. I think the opposite of being established um, and every good work is to live for Christ one day, but then not the next. To live for Christ when it is convenient and easy, but to compromise when to live for Christ is uncomfortable and difficult. You and I need to have hearts that are so filled with the love for Christ and desire to see his kingdom spread that we will have the courage to live for Christ, even if it means persecution. We must be the kind of people who consistently serve Christ regardless of personal cost. That's what it means to be established in good works. You need to be so established in a life of good works to God's glory that even if the entire anti-Christian world is against you, you persevere in doing what God has called you to do. And Paul prays to God that this comfort and this stability will be part of the lives of the Thessalonians, affecting their very hearts. These are things that as elders we are to ask God to give you. These are things that you ought to ask God to give yourself as well as to give to other fellow believers. And these are things that only God can give us, but they are things that we can also expect God to give us. When Paul records his prayer, it's obvious that he wants the Thessalonians to know about this prayer for them. And he also wants them to know truths that are going to assure them that God will answer this prayer. I'm referring now to verse 16. We kind of began with the second part. We began with verse 17, talking about 
what it is to, to pray for God to comfort hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And now we're going back to verse 16, where it says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Notice the names that are addressed here in this prayer. There's, the great, there's great comfort to be found in these names. Not simply Jesus, but Lord Jesus. He is the master. He is the ruler of this universe. He is sovereign even over the forces of evil. So we have nothing to fear from the devil or from his servants in any kind of anti-Christian kingdom. And he is the Christ. He is God's anointed. He is God's Messiah. He is the anointed Savior of God's people who by his death and resurrection has demonstrated his love for us and has earned for us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Um, notice that it is not simply God who is addressed, but God, our Father. And as our Father, it means we are his children. This speaks of our relationship with God, as well as his attitude toward us, that he loves us, that this is a relationship of intimacy and friendship, that he is seeking our good. He doesn't want us to be terrified, but wants us to enjoy our relationship with him and to know that he will take care of us. And this relationship that we have with both God the Father and God the Son is brought to our attention by the word our. Jesus is our Lord and Christ and God is our Father. Again, this word our speaks of intimacy. It speaks of a relationship of love and fellowship. And Paul writes of both Father and Son. And yet, by how Paul writes, especially we notice in the Greek, he places special emphasis on Jesus Christ. We find this emphasis from looking at the word order in the original language. The word himself actually comes first. So that it literally reads, now may himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, and, and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them. So it is fitting that Paul would put Jesus Christ there at the beginning, emphasizing the Lord Jesus himself, um, because it is he who has made it possible uh, for God to be our Father. It is through Jesus, through his saving work, that we can know God as Father. And the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, wants you to know that as his children you are loved. He wants you to know that having received Jesus Christ as Lord and, and as Christ, that you have eternal comfort. Um, this eternal comfort and this good hope are here uh, presented as things that have been given to us in the past. And uh, comfort means consolation. It means encouragement. God has given us comfort by forgiving our sins, by drawing us to himself in friendship, assuring us that, that through the Lord Jesus Christ we are received and, and blessed, that our sins are not held against us. And we consequently have a good hope of eternal life in heaven. That's certainly what... Uh, Paul has in mind here the, the hope of heaven, the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ returning and bringing us to be with him in heaven. All of these things are ours because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross received by faith. It is Jesus Christ who has given us eternal comfort and good hope.
Uh, he has, by his death on the cross, taken away the curse of sin. He has merited eternal favor with God for us. He has satisfied God's justice against our sin. By his perfect life, he has merited our righteousness. And this is eternal comfort. This is comfort that is ours in Christ. It is comfort that will never change. And the idea here is for you to think about how God has already demonstrated his love and care for you in giving his son to die for you. The goal is that you would think about that hope that you have in Christ. Because when you think about Christ, when you think about what he has already done, about what you already have in the Lord Jesus Christ, the blessings, the salvation, then you know that he is going to continue to love you and to care for you. He's not going to abandon you suddenly to the evil one. You know that he is going to answer this prayer to comfort and strengthen you. God is a a gracious God. God's love for us bringing eternal comfort and good hope. These are not things we deserve. They are ours through grace. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. We need to keep that in mind, this this truth of these things being ours through grace. Uh, That itself gives us hope. Hope you can recognize how this gives you hope because with all of our sin, all of our weaknesses, we would be nothing but discouraged if our relationship with God depended upon our performance. Thanks be to God that he graciously and sovereignly works to make us into what we would never be on our own. And right now, God is telling you of his love. He is telling you of the blessings that you have already been given in Christ in order to comfort and to encourage you for the future, as well as to inspire your faithfulness to him. Are you hearing him? Are you hearing the Lord Jesus in the message this evening? If so, then even now, God is graciously answering this prayer on your behalf. Let us continue to pray that God will not stop comforting our hearts and establishing us in every good work and word. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we do ask that you who have loved us, who have given us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, you have, you have saved us through Christ, you have brought us to yourself. Lord, we pray that you continue to comfort our hearts, that you would establish our hearts in every good work and word, that, Father, we would hold to the traditions, that we would stand firm despite all of the evil opposition that is to be found in the world against the church, against us. Father, in spite of all of the false doctrine, Lord, we pray that we would be protected. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would do our part, that we would hold to the traditions. But, Father, at the same time, we recognize that you must do a mighty work in our hearts. And we desire that work. We pray for that work, that we would be established in these things, that we would be comforted, that, Father, we would not ever imagine that our salvation depends upon us, but that we would ever be looking to you, to your grace, uh, to, to um, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has been given to us, given for us, uh, who has loved us even from eternity and has demonstrated that love through his death on the cross. So, Father, encourage us, strengthen us, we pray, for the spiritual battle that is a part, always, of this life here on earth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.